Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. This episode is drawn from our October 21st, 2021 seminar, Cold War Secrets Revealed. There are four episodes in total. If you enjoy this episode, please check out the other seminar-related episodes, all of our podcast episodes, and our live, virtual, and in-person events. Council General Gill and Greg to take their seats. David Gill is the Consul General of Germany in New York. He was in East Germany when the Berlin Wall fell and collected numerous files kept by the Stasi, East Germany's infamous state security service. He has served as German Consul General in New York since October of 2017. Previously, he was appointed on March 19, 2012 by President Joachim Gock to the Secretary of State and head of the Bundespräsidentamt. my German is very rusty, the administration of the president of Germany, where he stayed in office until February of 2017. He is a member of the Social Democratic Party of Germany, and he received his baccalaureate at the Protestant High School in Potsdam in 1988. Consul General Gill, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. You knew what you were getting into when we had uh, lunch four years ago with Matthew Collard. You said, hey, I think I'd like to see the Jackson Center. And uh, you allowed us how maybe uh, for one of the first times talk about your your personal life. Did you know this would actually happen? Well, um, I didn't expect the pandemic uh, hitting <laughs> this, the country and the world, but no, I was absolutely interested uh, to come here when you talked about what the Jackson Center is doing because um, there were many times in my life when I exactly was pursuing that what you do here, looking for justice, looking for how to deal with um, guilt and how to cope with the past. And that's why I, uh, it resonated very, very much in me to come here. And I'm happy to be here, it's great. Talk about resonating with the past. Uh, in November of 1989, the, the Berlin Wall comes down. You're in East Germany, you're in East German. Uh, where were you and did you sense that a, that particular day and time would actually occur? If I would have expected it, I wouldn't have been where I was on November 9th. <laughs> I wasn't in Berlin, unfortunately, even though I used to live during this time in East Berlin, not far from the wall, uh, but the wall was for me the end of the world. I was a young uh, student uh, of theology in my third sem semester. And um, yes, of course, the changes were um, visible and um, 
We already had, had uh, big demonstrations in the streets, not only of Leipzig, where it was very decisive that the people went out to the streets, but also in Berlin, five days before the wall fell on October, November 4th, there was a mass demonstration in Berlin, half a million people uh, on the Alexanderplatz in the middle of, uh, in the center of East Berlin, now the center of whole Berlin. And um, yeah, we, we demonstrated for freedom and the rule of law and the end of the communist rulership and for free elections. And of course, for uh, uh, the opportunity to travel to the West, um, but nobody had the fantasy to, to imagine that just overnight the wall was, would fall. We expected that the, 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 the regulations would ease uh, everything, but not, not that. And so I uh, left Berlin on November 9th in the afternoon to travel to a pretty remote little town in Saxony where I met uh, with other people from my church where we wanted to prepare the uh, the the summer camps for kids and young people for the next next summer and there we sat in the middle of nowhere nobody had a car we heard the news and we couldn't go back to berlin and and particularly those of us who lived in berlin during this time and were confronted with the wall every day we were eager to to leave but of course we are um we were, very, we were very committed to our tasks, so we stayed for two more days, but the Berliners left on Saturday, it was a Thursday night, and the others stayed, but we wanted to go back and see it with our own eyes what, what, what happens there in, in, in Berlin. Background, your father was a minister. Indeed. Uh, had ministry been part of your real past? I mean, did, had his family been part of the ministry? Um, uh, no, his, my, my father comes from a family, yes, his father was not a theologian, full trained uh, uh, theologian, he was a trained diacon and he went actually, my father was born in Suriname, but, which is uh, Dutch, uh, was Dutch uh, Guyana, where my grandfather served as a missionary of, I come from a very small church, it's called in Germany, Hernuter Brudergemeinde, here it's the Moravian Church, it's a worldwide, very small church, and with a strong missionary. So, but my grandfather was the first in his family who, who served in the church. He came from a very pretty poor, poor family in what was then Poland uh, when my grandfather was born. My mother's side was not a family of of, of, um, of, of ministers, there were some in some of her ancestors, but her family uh, lived in this little town where I grew up, where the Moravian Church was founded, very rooted in the Moravian Church. So that was, yeah, also my family history, indeed. But um, of course, in East Germany, being a minister and being a minister's child meant something else than in a free society it meant not only uh, um, uh, growing up in a spiritual environment, it was also an environment was, which was in a way politicized in a positive way. Um, 
Um, because the only place in East Germany which was, or the only organization uh, was, which was not governed by the Communist Party was the churches, were the churches. And so the churches were the only place where people, even though the Stasi watched them, um, felt they can speak more openly and they found refuge beside the spiritual um, um, home. And that's how I was brought, brought up. And this was on the one hand, a great privilege, but of course it wasn't a privilege because when you decided to be active in the church, it was very clear you would, wouldn't uh, achieve any career in the government or even in the economy uh, or in the cultural sphere, uh, all uh, governed by the communist party. So the reason I studied theology in this time um, was twofold. I wanted to become a, a theologian. And I wanted to uh, become a leader in my church and um, a supporter of my congregation and the people who need help, not only spiritual, but also politically and uh, um, yeah, um, provide space for, for people to discuss their thoughts and convictions. And second, there was no other, other, other way to, 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 to study. I, I, I attended a, a seminary of my church. Uh, I was not even allowed to go to high school. So the university education was blocked for me and many of my peers. And um, yeah, and there's another um, um, part of this story. I'm not, I wouldn't have only become a theologian, which, which I didn't. I studied three semesters of theology, and then the wall fell, and then the story went different from expected. I'm also a trained plumber. This was also <laughs> a very typical career of children from ministers' family. And all the ministers in, in East Germany had, were, were carpenters, plumbers, electricians, because before they went to the seminary, they usually learned to trade. Um, because you never knew, knew um, will the whole regime change. And one day they will, like in Czechoslovakia, for instance, where they went very hard against the churches, or in Romania, much, much harder than in East Germany, there might be the day you need to have a, a profession where you can make your living off. So that was my personal situation when the wall fell. So during this time period, clearly omnipresent is the Stasi. The Stasi's everywhere. And in fact, having prepared for this, they had more informants, more per capita people under there than the Gestapo ever did. So when you think the Nazis, the Gestapo, the East German Stasi was much more numbers driven. Mm -hmm. And though the church may be a safe haven, but how did that affect your daily activity? I mean, mm -hmm. you again, you walk out of the church, uh, there, you got to be somewhat conscious of what you say when you say it. For me personally, um, it didn't play the big role like it might have had played for others. We were aware of the Stasi. 
Um, it was very clear over months and years that our, our mail would be opened visibly. My father once protested against it and um, they didn't stop it. And yes, um, you knew this, but the consequences for me couldn't have been that terrible. I was excluded already from higher education and I had my safe haven. But in general, Yes, um, the pure existence of the Stasi led to what we called the scissor in your head. So you very carefully considered what can you say publicly and what can you uh, say in the, only in a very private environment. And so a self-censorship of the people in East Germany, which went through the whole society. Um, and it started already in kindergarten and school. So many East Germans watched West German television. That's another story we can talk about it. This was officially forbidden, but everybody did it. And children learned from a very young age on not to talk about this in school or kindergarten. Um, to get their parents not in trouble um, if teachers or uh, kindergarten teachers uh, could uh, uh, know this and might report it to the Stasi. So, and uh, that's why I often say, beside the huge archives and the hundreds of thousands of official and uh, unofficial workers for the Stasi, uh, the pure existence of the Stasi was alone was so decisive for the whole societal atmosphere in Germany, of self-censorship, of leaving the church, um, um, not speaking out, um, uh, digesting your anger and um, obey. Because you feared whatever you say against the state, the government, the Communist Party could be used against you. Being born in- But, but I want to add something. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm always hesitant to compare the Gestapo and the Stasi and it, um, um, and even though the, uh, and, and you said the Stasi had so much, so many more uh, informants, etc. That's That's true. Um, they had more time. And secondly, I think the longer East Germany existed, the less the people were convinced that this is the right, right system. And so there was this fear of the system that they con could lose control. And that's why they had this strong and, and very close network of informants that they could, that they always had the the, the, the opportunity or the, that, that they could control the whole society. That was the idea behind it. Being a um, born in 1966, and uh, we know that the, from a timeline, the Berlin Wall comes down in 1989. You're in this teenage, early 20s. Early 20s. Early 20s. Uh, 23, did, I was when the. Did you came. find uh, folks? and especially perhaps generated from the church because you could talk somewhat freely within the church that, that they might've become perhaps leaders in the uh, uh, conversation outside of the church, perhaps 
uh, of uh, system change. I mean, um, the the the, the um, fantasy was uh, not so big that we could imagine that uh, the change will come so quickly in East mm -hmm. Germany uh, with a peaceful revolution, which happened over just couple or three or four months and then the changes dramatically uh, started. But it was very obvious that um, the leaders of the peaceful revolution and then the leaders of the political transition in East Germany were um, most had mostly a church background. Mm -hmm. There were many theologians but also many lay persons and also experts in environmental questions, in disarmament uh, uh, questions, in political questions, in uh, in in, in in relationship to the to in relation to the history or to Poland and and other countries, and they all uh, were rooted or at least had a home within the church and. For one reason, the church was the safe haven and the church opened the, uh, their uh, buildings and uh, churches for people who were in opposition to the regime. And so groups like, for instance, environmental groups found a space within the church. That was not even so that all of the members of these environmental protection um, uh, groups were members of the church, but they knew they will, they will take care of us and they will provide us if it's necessary with a lawyer, et cetera. And it was the, if you want, like, yeah. it like this, it was kind of training camp for democracy, mm -hmm. even in East Germany. Um, we discussed in the churches what is necessary of changes. The Social Democratic Party of East Germany was basically founded by um, students of my seminary and one of the uh, one of our professors the philosophy professor who started in mid 80s to talk about the political theories and uh, the tradition of the social democrats and then they founded it young ministers some of them still students and who became the members of the freely elected uh, parliament when it was elected in in March uh, 1990. Or um, training camps, uh, for instance, the, 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 the vice president of the parliament uh, then in 1990, who managed the parliament, was a mathematician from Magdeburg, a small town outside of Berlin, not so small. And why was he able to manage a parliament? Because he was the president of a synod of a Protestant church in his region a pure parliament. He knew how to run a parliament, how, how to work with regulations, how to, to run elections, etc. And, and in addition, um, the churches were also very crucial in, the, in keeping the relationship between West Germans and East Germany. 
and, and East Germans. We couldn't travel, but the West Germans could travel to the East. There were hundreds of thousands, millions of Germans who had relatives on both sides who visited each other. And the churches had a network of partner congregations. Each congregation in East Germany had a partner organization in West Germany. Um, they came to visit them, they helped them financially, they kept the kept uh, the canals, the channels to 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 the free world for, for the people behind the Iron Curtain. And this was also important during the transition because we were heavily supported by 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 West Germany and very soon lawyers and uh, administrators creative experts came to help to in the transition. And often those were people um, who had relations through their congregations, etc. So yeah, they played a big role. The, um, the, um, the highest lay person in the, in, the, in the church leadership, Manfred Stolpe became the governor of Brandenburg. So you found them everywhere. In 1991, you were one of six individuals uh, who were awarded a Theodore Hoist Medal uh, by its foundation on behalf of the peaceful protesters of 1989 in then East Germany. What'd you do to deserve that? <laughs> um, well, this was a great honor and with uh, great people, I shared this medal. But we all were, um, um, we actually the prize was awarded to all the East Germans in the, in the peaceful revolution. And they picked six of them to represent uh, the whole movement in East Germany. Um, and uh, there were uh, representatives of the, of the new um, political parties or movements, which, which were crucial. Uh, during summer 1989 and then in the transition in uh, 90. And obviously I was the representative of this movement who took over the Stasi uh, uh, headquarters in the Stasi in East Germany. I, I became in, in January 1990, I became the um, head of the citizens committee which took over the control of the dissolution of the Stasi in the Stasi headquarters. And we had these kinds of, of, of citizens committees in all major headquarters in the citizen in, in the in the um, district capitals in East Germany already in December 1990, but not in the headquarters, the main headquarters uh, in Berlin. And that was seized by a demonstration in mid of mid mid of January of 1990. And I joined a, a newly founded uh, citizens committee there. And two days later, I suddenly was the head of this citizen committee. That happens in transitions like this. Um, you have to do something, sometimes something you didn't expect. So, and obviously the medal I got as a representative uh, of this very decisive and important movement and uh, those people who were brave to take over the, the Oh, he's so humble. And right here, this is the, the Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, by the way. <laughs> and if you type in Stasi, 
And within it is a section called recovery of Stasi files. And it said this and dealt with the storming of the Stasi headquarters in Berlin. With the fall of the GDR, the Stasi was dissolved. Stasi employees began to destroy the extensive files and documents they held either by hand or by using incineration or shredders. When these activities became known, a protest began in front of the Stasi headquarters on the evening of January 15, 1990, a large crowd formed and essentially the building was taken over. Was it, were you part of that? I unfortunately can't claim the merit for the storm. I came in a day later. I was involved in other small uh, political groups. We, we uh, already in the fall of 1989, we discussed changes in our neighborhoods more than the big changes. Um, I was a witness of the first uh, round table. This was this um, um, yeah, um, model we learned from Poland, which brought together the old government and the new movements at a table, in Berlin it was not really a round table, to discuss the transition. And the first um, meeting of this round table in December 1989 happened to uh, um, take place in my church's sanctuary. It's a modern small sanctuary in the Moravian church. That's why I assisted there and sometimes afterwards. So, but I was not at the storm. I went a night later. I was a student of theology. I was politically interested. I heard uh, that they needed people to support this newly um, or this forming citizens committee. And so I went a day later there to uh, in the evening thinking, okay, I will have to, to secure the gates or whatever they assigned me to, to support the citizens committee. Um, and as I told you, uh, two days later, suddenly I was the head of the citizen <laughs> committee because I wasn't assigned to secure gates, but I was asked to join a group of people I haven't seen before. Um, people like me who felt the necessity that we have to take over this, this headquarter and have to um, secure that they can't continue to work as Stasi and that they stop to destroy the evidence of it, of what they did, because there was evidence that they, they destroy um, papers, etc. Et so, and this group um, discussed how we could, we could um, organize our citizens committee. Thank God there were, there were already, there were the, some people from the um, citizens committee from the district capitals who had already experience of five weeks how, how to organize something like this they supported us to 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 yeah to organize a structure of, of the citizen committee and we discussed this very intensely and two days later when we um, when the question was raised who should had the certain departments and who should be the head of all of that, somebody um, pointed to me and everybody else nodded. And so I was. And it doesn't, that's not any different than the United States, by the way, if you <laughs> turn your head or turn your head down, you're the chairman. So 
Uh, well, but that's that's understanding all that you did. What was the driving factor? I mean, here's the Stasi building. You knew there were records. What was the motive, the overriding motivating factor to come and secure the building? So I, I already talked briefly about this. We had, for me, two things were most important. Uh, to end the rulership of the Stasi, finally, of course, they already the changes had uh, been dramatic, but they still were without any control in the Stasi, in the, in the headquarters in Berlin. And we wanted to stop any activity of the Stasi. And the second, we wanted to secure the evidence. We wanted to stop the destruction of the files. And uh, this was the initial motivation. And then, of course, immediately the discussion started, what do we want with the files? Whom are we responsible against? The victims, of course, but also the society. And there was a big discussion, for instance, uh, in the first weeks within the Citizens Committee and also within the new political groups, should we uh, keep the files at all? There were um, serious discussions in our groups and, and people who advocated for this, destroying the, 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 the files because they could hinder our, uh, yeah, the development of the new democratic state. And we, we will only look in the, in the, in the history and, and we, we will miss the chance to rejuvenize our country and dem democratize our country. Um, there was the discussion about should victims see their files at all, or will this lead to self-justice and uh, turmoil in East Germany? And uh, so this were the first weeks, but then it became very clear, we need the file to cope with the past in order to build our future. And there was this historical lesson we had learned that it is not worth it to wait for 20 or even more years to do this difficult work. So um, I talked about yesterday a little bit in our conference that uh, yes, the Nuremberg trials happened and other trials happened, but the real start I don't want to say the real start, but it took until the late 60s that the society in Germany as a whole started to really um, look into the, uh, into the past and learned that this is part of our history. We have to deal with openly and it will not hinder us to, to build the future, but uh, maybe help us. And that was a, a lesson from the, from the past. We, we realized we should take serious. And um, it was very clear we also were, um, should be committed to the victims. And the victims were very clear we want to know what happened during these 40 years of East Germany. And the most influential part of um, or the instrument to, to interfere in biographies and personal relationship was the Stasi. And so it was very clear, no, we have to keep this, these files. We also realized that it was um, eye-opening 
that we need those files also for a act of polit political hygiene. So um, to prevent that people who were responsible for destroying biographies who uh, brought families uh, uh, um, um, yeah, destroyed families, personal biographies, um, a community, um, people who served the Stasi shouldn't be in responsible positions, at least for a couple of decades. Um, they shouldn't sit in parliaments and they shouldn't sit in, uh, they shouldn't uh, serve in important uh, positions in the public ad administration as civil servants. So, um, we realized we need the files to find out who worked for the Stasi and who shouldn't be eligible to join the parliament or being high in the administration. Um, we owed this to the victims that they wouldn't experience that the perpetrators from the past now are the winners of the new situation. And we started uh, to to do this screening of the um, civil servants and the members of parliament very already in East German time, but after reunification, it was part of uh, a system which went on for a pretty long time. Um, it was the eye-opening um, 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 event was that there was a lawyer from East Germany heavily affiliated with the church. He was a member of the, uh, of the Synod. He was one of three uh, lawyers in East Germany where people uh, went to when they had political problems. People who didn't want to serve in the, in the military people who tried to flee Germany and were caught, uh, people who opposed, openly opposed against the regime. So he was very well known when you were in trouble in East Germany for political reasons uh, and uh, sued by the, by the government, he would help you. And he was the front runner for one of the new party uh, party groups for the election in, in, in March 18, on March 18, 1990. And people expected that he will be the next and the first free elected prime minister of East Germany, Wolfgang Schnur. And about three weeks before the election, the rumor started that Wolfgang Schnur has the other side of his, um, his past. And, uh, but nobody could prove it. So we went into the archives and we found uh, a, a, a big file of him. And it was very quickly um, obvious that he was not only some of thousands of spies who now and then uh, reported to their to their handlers, but uh, he was installed in the in the 60s within the church, sent by the Stasi, built up as this figure who uh, who is the trustworthy uh, um, attorney for those who, who are suppressed, 
uh, and uh, played this role over all the, the, these, those years. So it was very clear, we have to prevent something like this. And from this moment on, it was in early March, 1990, the discussions of destruction of the, of the files um, basically ended. And it was very clear, we want to keep these files. We, um, we have to find ways and um, to, to use them for the judicial, uh, judicial questions, criminal, the criminal prosecution for political reasons, historical reasons, but also for the personal um, um, yeah, coping with the past. Did you go and look for yours or your dad's files? Actually, I didn't. I, at least not in the beginning. One day later on, I asked for my, my colleagues to, to research if they find something about me. My father, and I was pretty young, I, was, I had some, some incidents they, they, they noted, but it was not really um, breathtaking or, 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 or shattering or something like this. My father had a very big file and uh, but he, he applied when it was possible. So I didn't want to do something illegal because in the beginning it was not possible that people just could apply to see their fights. It took until, actually until January 92 that the law was introduced that everybody had the right to see his or her file. That was still disputed. What does it mean? What, what will be the consequences, self-justice, et cetera? So, and then he, he got his file. He, he was in the church leader, leadership in my little town and um, one of the major um, uh, targets of the Stasi because he was pretty outspoken um, over the years. It started in the 50s. And um, uh, I would say a very righteous man who helped people and the Stasi didn't like that. And yes, he, he found, he had a big file. He found some surprises, but not only surprises. Did you find that fascinating? Or, uh, I mean, what, what was the human reaction? Dad comes and says, hey, I just went through my file and uh, somebody's re basically reporting on him. I, I don't think we- I mean, we, we expected that. Yeah. yeah, it was not surprise. Um, we expected it of one of the persons who was named as the uh, so-called inofficial co-worker. We didn't expect it, it, uh, it uh, was another person. And of course there were different levels of cooperation. There were people who um, permanently reported to the Stasi. There were people who rather, you can see this in the files, who rather reluctantly reported, but they agreed to report because they thought that will help them in their career or whatever, or they were just cowards to, to say no against the Stasi. And um, so it was always, yeah, fascinating. I don't know. Yeah, sometimes fascinating and, yeah. and sometimes also laughable. Um, I mean, you, the, the, the files always, show how the Stasi saw you and 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 um, 
and explained for themselves how you act in this or that situation. So it was also always through the, through the lens of the Stasi. And this is sometimes very laughable. If a Stasi officer interprets what you as a minister say or how you act with whom you, with whom you meet, they put uh, sometimes a lot of stupid um, um, conclusions in, in the files. That was sometimes also laughable, but it had consequences. And this was not laughable at all, particularly for, for people who didn't have the secure environment or the protection by the church or who could, uh, had to lose much more than some other people. You were able after the fall, the Berlin Wall and, and being then kind of uh, internally raised there to a certain committee head status, but a legacy from the fall and the legacy of the conclusion of the Cold War was you were able to change professions. You were able to add a degree. Uh, In, indeed. I'm, um, after I was trained as a plumber and worked an additional year as a plumber, I joined... By the way, using the term plumber, lawyers, Watergate, this has a different connotation. No, no, I got it. The, the I'm Washington a, people are... I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real plumber, yes, <laughs> I agree. So, um, after I, um, yeah, finished my apprenticeship Sorry. and worked... No, that's fine, that's good. Um, and worked for another year as a plumber, I joined, um, yeah... It was kind of a high school uh, run by the church, a preparatory school for my um, 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 studies of theology, um, which was a true gift that I was able to join this school. It was run by the Protestant church for kids like me who were excluded from higher education. And for this reason, we experienced a kind of freedom and great education you nowhere else in East Germany experienced. Um, we discussed openly in the classes, we read literature you never would read in other schools. Um, our teachers usually were teachers who were fired from a state school because they were too independently thinking. Um, so it were three great years and where we also learned what 99% um, of my peers in East Germany didn't learn to develop ideas, to discuss ideas, to speak openly, to speak in front of a group without your ideology in your head. Um, by the way, that was surely a reason that I, as one of the youngest in the citizens committee was elected as the, as the head of the citizens committee. But so I had a degree after the three years, which didn't mean anything in East Germany, nothing. Nobody would accept it except for the uh, uh, theological seminary in East Berlin. But then yes, after the wall came down, this degree of course was acknowledged in, uh, West Germany, or then in whole Germany, without any question. And indeed, I was um, able to change track. That was not obvious immediately, but after the war came down and after I joined the Citizens Committee, I worked for 
the parliament in East Germany. I was the secretary of one of the committees which was responsible for the dissolution of the Stasi. And then when the reunification came, one part of the reunification contract was the establishment of a federal agency dealing with the Stasi files, preparing them for, 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 for whatever reasons were uh, uh, possible uh, after the law. And uh, the head of the committee, I served as secretary, Joachim Gauck, you heard his name already mm -hmm. once today. He became later on the president of Germany, uh, became the first commissioner of this um, federal agency. And I was one of five people who basically started this, this agency uh, on October 3rd, 1990. And when I left the agency in um, or the office in 2019, 92, um, we were almost 3,000 employees because the, the archives were humongous and the, the tasks were, were big and the applications for seeing their files were in the hundreds of thousands and uh, the checks um, uh, uh, for politicians and civil servants were in the hundred thousands. You needed a lot of people to work there. So, I worked there for two more years. I was the first spokesperson. I, I, I headed the depart, department of, of um, research, but then I thought I don't want to um, deal my whole life with the past and with the Stasi. And I didn't want to go back to being a plumber. And so I, I thought I, it would be good to go back to, to school. And so, since I now had the broader variety, I thought, what do you want to do? Do you want to go back to theology? And then I decided, no, I want to study law because, um, um, yeah, the legal issues interested me all the time and also the skills as a lawyer. I never had in mind to become an attorney in a big law firm or something like this. But I wanted to, to use the skills of a lawyer in whatever I will do in the future. So I went back to law school. And, and it takes a long time in Germany to, to become a full-time, a full-trained lawyer. So you have to, first of all, uh, to have first exam after four or five years at the university. Then you have to intern for two more years. And then you have your second exam. I did all of this and I'm very happy that I did it. And I added a, a, a one year wonderful experience for a master's degree at, at, at UPenn, like, like Eli. Yep. But I was not at Wharton, I was at, at Penn Law School. Not bad, not bad. And your resume reads uh, an incredible, uh, was, you were also an intern at the United States Congress, your legal clerkship. Um, you were a desk officer of the Federal Ministry of the Interior, desk officer of the Office of the Commissioner for Data Protection and Freedom of Information in Berlin, deputy representation of the Council of the Protestant Church in Germany for a period of time, state secretary and head of the Office of the Federal President. 
and am now Council General in New York. Um, I, I can't let you go without commenting on the fact that here you are in the Robert Jackson Center. You obviously took a turn to become a, a interested in law as a lawyer. And what, what little you may have researched in anticipation of here, what's your sense of Jackson, perhaps his work at Nuremberg and maybe its legacy? I mean, Nuremberg, I talked about this yesterday, uh, was an um, eye-opener and a game-changer. And I think, at least I understand Jackson in this way, that uh, he wanted to make sure that the law and justice is more important than revenge and victory and the power of the victors. And that I find very fascinating. And that was also part of our considerations uh, in 1990, when we talked about how to deal with um, the legacy of the Stasi and how to deal with those who were the perpetrators or who supported the whole system. So um, the rule of law, as a foundation of a society is for me extremely important. Um, um, and particularly, or maybe in my case, because I know what it means when you are when you are when you are without any rights and you don't have a chance to sue your government or to stand up and say that's not right what you do, and uh, don't have a legal system which supports you in your rights. And uh, so this, this was the motivation, I'd say. Beside also the very useful skills as a lawyer, how to analyze things, how to structure things, how to talk about things. Um, um, yeah, but Jackson obviously was this person who, who really thought um, the law should govern our society. And... Um, um, there are more parts of the society, of course, but he really committed his life to, to this question that I find fascinating. As we draw closure to this amazing conversation, I'm so thrilled that you shared this so much background, but of Eva Maria, we're right here, and she had the opportunity to ask you one last question. What do you think she would ask you? Who? Eva Maria. If she were, if I brought her down now, but I'm not, to have her, have her ask you a question, <laughs> what do you think she might ask you? I, I don't know. Um, Eva Maria, for you who don't know her, is my colleague uh, from the consulate who just joined us in summer as the press uh, officer. And what would she ask me? I mean, she she came from the from the um, federal agency. Public Relations Agency of the of the federal government, and uh, she knows how government works, and um, she is often interested to hear from me how how I dealt with the issues when I was the was the chief of staff of the president of Germany, uh, where I was very close to the to the government. Um, but I don't know what she was would ask me. Well, I don't know. she'll probably end up way back on the car. She'll tell you, ask you. Yeah. Yes. We have one question here, a special question. I actually wanted to add a 
comment. Sure. Having done research in the Stasi archives, um, I went there to get information about class books, and uh, I had to do a little interview and have, make it an application. And if folks has no children, no siblings, or anything like that, correct? And his, I was under, under the auspices of his nephew, but it wasn't close enough at that point yeah. for them just to say, here are the files. The question that allowed me to get it, because I was able to answer a yes to, was Does Klaus Books have a wiki page? <laughs> that was the question. That was the question that allowed me to see his files, because he was then a famous person, Damn. and therefore. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's exactly it's the the, the, the division between public figures and uh, private uh, people, and and even public figures are not not rightless. I mean, they still have rights and of privacy, etc. But this is always a big question: what can be shown and what not? And there's of course a distinction between the perpetrators and the people who supported the Stasi. They have less rights. Um, uh, to keep their files secret than those who were victims of the of the Stasi, and Fuchs uh, was both in some ways, and oh, and and Fuchs was uh, both in some ways, and I think yes, he's a public figure. Uh, I I left the the, the 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 federal agency way before Wikipedia was in, uh, invented. And I'm I'm a little bit surprised that that would be the decisive question, but it might be one hint that he's a public figure. Yes. Well, and, and as we say thank you to David Gill, I want you to know right here, he is a public figure, so you too can have access to the archives. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, David Gill. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you.